I have, I have looked forward to this particular service um, for several months. We started working with our leadership, our pastoral leadership, the board and, and department leaders several months ago because we recognized that our church is not the same church it was eight years ago uh, when, I, when I had the wonderful opportunity of being asked to pastor here. We had a guiding set of principles and, and vision statement that uh, fit us well for that particular time, but I believe that the Lord is beginning to launch us in some new directions and felt like we needed to have a vision statement, a mission statement, and values that reflect what God is doing currently with us and leading us. And so over these next three weeks, I'm going to be sharing with you our vision statement, our mission statement, and the values, and, and, and drawing from the Word of God the impetus for why we are going the direction that we're going, and uh, we will enjoy that together. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you uh, to turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 10. There's a couple of verses that are going to be the setup verses for the launch of our vision statement. And, and uh, why we do what we do. And today the message is entitled, Pursuing Our Vision. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, speaking of Jesus, it said, The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Another verse that you can turn to is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter 3, 9, and it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, Father, as we approach your word this morning and as we begin to to launch what we feel you have laid upon our heart to be the direction that we go as a church, we ask that there would be the freedom of the Holy Spirit that would not only affect my heart, my mind, and my mouth, but also would affect the ears and the spirit and the soul of every hearer, that we might be owners of this vision and participants in it, we pray. Lord, we are your church. We want your fingerprints all over us. As you lead us and you guide us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Several weeks ago in one of the messages, I uh, introduced to you the Grace Assembly motto, which is really just a reflection of who we are as a people and the responses that people have given to us, and that we are a community of hope welcoming people home. We are a community of hope welcoming people home. And I cannot tell you how many times I have had guests that have come into the church and instantly they've been greeted by people. And, and more than one time they have said, I just felt like when I entered into the church, I just felt at home. I just felt at home. I love that when people are so welcomed that there is, before the church even starts, they have already sensed this place. Like, this is a place where I can settle and grow spiritual roots and be a part of the body of Christ. I love that because I believe that that is the heart of God, that Grace Assembly is a community of hope welcoming people home. But let me tell you what our vision is. Our vision that we have worked together for and where we are and where we're going is this. Locally to globally, pursuing every heart with the love of Jesus. Locally to globally, pursuing every heart with the love of Jesus. 
In the late 1970s, a Southern California family set up for a weekend camping trip in the desert at Joshua Tree National Park. After they had set up camp and had everything set up, the mother was preparing a meal, and as she was getting close to having that meal ready, she began to call for her husband and their three-year-old daughter, Laura, to come and gather around the table. Her husband responded, but, but Laura didn't, and so they thought perhaps their little girl had found a new playmate in a nearby camping site, and so they began to uh, spread out going different directions, calling for her and asking people if, if perhaps they had a child that had seen her. As they began to make their way past two or three campsites to the point where they thought that would be the extension of her world at that point and had not yet found her, naturally panic began to set in. And they became much more sense of, of desperation in their search and it became more frantic. And they called louder and louder and ultimately others began to join in in the search until most of the people that were in that park had been notified of Lord's disappearance and had started searching with them. Over the next 30 days, thousands of people combed hundreds of miles of desert floor looking and calling for Laura, but she was never found. The common thought of law enforcement was that Laura had been kidnapped because of the extensiveness of the search, and they said that's the only thing that could have happened. If that is true, then Laura was raised by persons that had a different identity than she was born with, probably gave her a new name. Today, Laura would be in her early 40s, and she knows neither her true name, nor does she know her true family and her true parents. What Laura does not know is that she is a lost child, but someone knows. I doubt that there is a day that goes by that her parents do not think about her and are still hoping to find her. I want you to know that when we approach the word, Jesus identified his central mission this way. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. You see, our neighborhood, our city, our world are filled with Lauras. They are filled with people who do not realize that they are lost. They do not realize that they've been kidnapped and that their real identity and that their real parent, their heavenly father, that they do not know they've not been raised in the home and in the way that he desired. And so, for every child that is lost, God has commissioned his church to join in the search for the lost Lauras and the lost Larrys that fill our community and fill our state and fill our nation and fill our world. This is the purpose by which God has created his church for. The vision of God is that each of us must assume a pursuit mentality. A pursuit mentality. That there is something to be said by not just living for God, but living with his purpose and living with his heart, beating within us as we go out to find those who are lost. If you have a bulletin, there are three points I would like to share with you this morning. And the first one is our vision matches the heart of God. Our vision matches the heart of God. He said in the text that we read this morning that he is not willing for any to perish. I have to admit to you, that there are certain people groups that I sometimes wonder if they will ever be reached. 
If the hardness of the heart or the hardness of the culture hasn't been such that some just will be so resistant, but the heartbeat of God and the vision that he has for us is that there is no one that he is willing to see perish without an opportunity. And his vision is local to global in scope. You see, what we deal with is sin is the big problem in our world. Sin is our big problem, whether we want to own up to it or not. Sin is what got Adam and Eve booted out of the garden. Sin is what keeps people out of God's heaven. Sin is what we battle because of our willingness to disobey God's direction. Sin has been the problem because Satan is an old deceiver and he has duped people into believing a lie. He lied to them because he's been a liar from the beginning. The truth is not in him. He's not capable of telling the truth. And when we listen to a liar, we can be led by the liar. And people are easily duped into sinning today by the evil one and by the evil people of this world. In fact, it tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let me remind you, church, I understand that we've just celebrated our 100 years of existence we would be considered by some to be an old, established church. And I said, then you don't know us. We may be old, but we're not established. We are still on the move. But there comes this sense in our hearts as we begin to grow in maturity in the Lord that we become incapable of sinning. We get really comfortable with our own idea of righteousness and our knowledge of that. And I want you to know that the moment that you begin to think that you were above being tempted or that you were above falling, you have placed yourself in a very dangerous place. We must always be on guard because all of us are sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. And we are short of his holiness, and we are in need of his divine mercy. So how then can we overcome sin? How can we be saved from our sins? How can we find that the record could be made clean within our life? How can we experience victory in our life? There is only one way, and that is through a relationship in and with Jesus Christ. This must form all of our efforts as a church, this belief that Jesus is the only way and the only name by which we can be saved. We live in a world where they believe there are options and there are not. He is the only name by which we can be saved. And as a result of that, when Jesus came to this earth, this was his passion and this is what it's always been about, his heart. And if we are to walk as he walked, then we must understand that his concern is for the lost and that being lost is a big deal because he wants his kidnapped children back home. First of all, if we look at the example of Jesus, we see that his own ministry centered on evangelism, both publicly and privately. If you were to take your Bible and turn to Matthew at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, then, and, and you can if you want, I'm going to mention several different places. Starting in Matthew 4, as he begins to preach. The message that we see him preaching in Matthew 4, 17 is this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached the kingdom's nearness. He preached that men must enter by the provision that God would make. And he called men to the kingdom. He was preaching a seeking message. I am seeking those who are lost. Moving to Matthew chapter 9 and verses 35 and 36. Jesus was going into all of the cities 
and all of the villages. He was active in his pursuit. He was teaching in the synagogues. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom is at hand, he was proclaiming. And then, in order to provide validity to his message, there was the healing of every kind of diseases and the healing of every sickness. And seeing the multitudes of people responding, it says he felt compassion for them because they were distressed. They were downcast. They were sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples this, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. You see, Jesus was a compassionate evangelist who saw lost people and he saw them in their lostness. He saw them in their discouragement. He saw them when they were downcast and he looked at them and saw they are sheep without a shepherd. They don't know where they're going. We must pursue them. And he asked that God would raise up more evangelists. You move further on and you see in chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says to them, come to me. That's an evangelistic call that reaches out to those who don't know where they're going. And Jesus stands as a light and says, here I am. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And he's talking directly to those Jews that were carrying around an unbelievably strong and heavy burden, a load of guilt, a load of sin, a load of tradition, a load of legalism, and under works they were being crushed and unable to attain the soul peace that they wanted deeply within them. And he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who are carrying religious baggage, and I will give you rest. That's the call to salvation. That's the call to the proper means of salvation. But there's a tenderness and a compassion to his evangelism. Here's what I want to warn us of, church. Sometimes we think our best evangelism is to swing the Bible as a sword. Sometimes we think if I just take this and use it as a weapon, I'll beat them into submission. And so as that, we begin to attack, and, and we begin to attack people and their life and their lifestyle, and by doing so, we have caused them to put up shields and draw conclusions about us as Christians that really harden their heart toward us. And Jesus very clearly demonstrates that he was a compassionate evangelist. He reached their heart, he knew their, their needs, and as he went to them, he did so in such a way that they lowered the shields of defense so that they could be open to receive the love that he brings to them. As you move into John chapter 6, crowds of people had just seen him do a, a miracle of feeding thousands and providing for them in a very creative miracle that he created out of nothing. They'd seen his credential, they'd heard his teaching. And after seeing other miracles, he says to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. In other words, I want you to know that I am the one that Jesus, or that God has sent to provide for you. He says later in verses 32 and 33, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you this bread out of heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and the purpose is to give life to the world. He begins to declare to us his calling and his vision and his passion. It's a call to salvation to come to know him. And then he comes to those who are celebrating 
the day when water came pouring out of a rock and on that celebration he stands up and he says, if any of you is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. And he turns this moment into a moment of evangelism as he calls people to himself. In John 10, 7, he says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. I'm the only way. It's when you come to me and he, he's a calling them into a relationship and evangelizing their heart. He's always evangelizing. John eleven twenty five. 25, at that wonderful day when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he looked at all of those who had seen that and he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. In other words, I need you to know that my kingdom is more than just this world. That when you come to me, your salvation includes an eternity that will make death obsolete. So great is his salvation. Do you believe this? It's an invitation, folks. That's an evangelistic invitation of Jesus preaching and saying, come to me. He was calling people to himself, calling them to repent and turn from their sin to drop the load of works righteousness and guilt and sin and take up the yoke of relationship because he had come to seek, to pursue, and to save the lost. And then John says this, if we abide in him, we ought to walk the way he walked. And he walked through this world as an evangelist with a purpose. And so here it is, church. If we who know Christ walk in any other way except with an evangelistic heart, with a pursuit mindset that we are living here and existing today for the sole purpose of being the doorway by which others can come to Jesus Christ, we will have missed what God wants for us. Not only did he preach to multitudes, he was great with personal evangelism. In fact, in John 1, he brought Philip to salvation. In Luke 5, he records that he brought Matthew to salvation. And if anybody seems that you have hopeless cases in your family or in your circle that you're around, I want you to know if he can bring Matthew to salvation, he can bring anybody to salvation. Then in John 4, he meets with a Samaritan woman, met her at a well, and marvelously evangelized her personally. Then there was this little tax collector called Zacchaeus. And he went to his home, and in one-on-one -on -one personal evangelism, he brought the knowledge of himself, of salvation, and he said, today, salvation has entered this house because Jesus had entered the house. Some of you today may need salvation to enter your life because Jesus is here, and he wants to change you. In that same city, he found a man that had to change his name after this day because he'd been known as Blind Bartimaeus. And then Jesus comes to him, evangelizes him, heals him, and changes him. In Mark 5, the demon-possessed man living in the tombs with bodies and corpses of dead people, and Jesus confronted him. And when Jesus was through talking to him, it said that he was saved, clothed, and in his right mind. Oh, hallelujah for the Savior that changes when he arrives. And I guess what could be considered most glorious of all, this one really touches me because there have been so many requests lately in our church of people who are going through such hard times and difficult circumstances. And, and as a result of that, it clouds our thinking and we lose focus of our purpose. Jesus, when he was being crucified, 
overwhelmed with the anxiety of having the sin of the world placed upon his shoulder. In that moment had a man hanging next to him that deserved to die, and moments from a Christless eternity, he makes an appeal. Will you remember me today? Jesus never let his personal pain or condition get in the way of his purpose. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Why did he do it then? Because his purpose was to come to seek and pursue and save the lost. And the mission of Jesus is the vision of grace assembly. It is the reason that we exist. If we are not about the the king's business, then there's no reason to pray for an anointing. Because he will only anoint what he directs. And he only blesses what he guides in. And so, Lord, help us to be about your heart. Secondly, our vision requires engagement. I'm going to give away my age here, but there was a movie that I saw some time ago called Top Gun. Do any of you remember that movie? There was more in this service than there was in, in the first service. There was a situation there, and... For those of you that may remember parts of it, there, there was a pilot who was unbelievably talented as a pilot, and his code name was Maverick, and that was kind of the description of his nature. He was always trying to do things on his own, and he had been through a series of personal tragedies where he didn't know really what had happened to his father, and he'd recently lost his, his co-pilot in an accident, and now he's engaged in, in a situation where they are being attacked, and his wingman needs him, and he's struggling in his mind with, what do I do? What do I do? He's so afraid of failure that he's afraid to engage. And, and finally, in his mind, he begins to preach to himself in the cockpit, and, and he finally says, I will not leave my wingman. And in a moment's decision, he grabs a hold of the, of the, the, the cockpit stick, and he rams it in, and he turns, and he engages, and there's a wonderful victory that follows his moment to decide to engage. I want you to know something, church. I believe that that's a decision that every one of us have to make on a regular basis. Some of you need to preach to yourself today. Some of you need to quit just believing that church is attending and being around friends and understand that we are about the king's business here. And some of you need to grab the direction stick of your life and begin to push it where you are engaging in the work of the Lord so that victory can come. Some of you haven't seen a victory in a long time because you haven't engaged in a long time. Christianity is the only religion in which the followers of God are given the opportunity to somehow regulate the openness of the door to heaven. According to Jesus, it's not just he, but we also who are to seek and save the lost. Now, I'm not saying we have the ability to save them. He's done the work, but we have the ability to chase them and to pursue them. Church is not a spectator sport. In fact, you cannot go to church because you are the church. We have a father who has a young daughter in our church, and he and I were having a conversation, and he began to explain it to me this way. He says, I tell my daughter when we're coming on Sunday mornings that we're going to meet together with the church. I don't want her to think that this is the church, but we're, we're meeting with the church. And I thought, what a wonderful way of explaining it to a child so that they understand from the very beginning of their faith that we gather together for equipping, but we are the church to go out into all the world. So we gather together at certain times, but here's what I want you to know. 
Grace Assembly is not a church with one location. We are a church with hundreds and hundreds of locations. Some of them are in the public schools. Some of them are in office buildings. Some of them are in hospitals. Some of them are in dentist's office. Some of them are in homes. Some are in government buildings. And some are in retail spaces around our city. You see, you are the church wherever you go. Your job is your mission field. Your life and lifestyle is your sermon. Your colleagues are your congregation. And when you leave this place on a Sunday morning, you do not leave the presence of God. You take the presence of God and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit with you and you walk out these doors and into the middle of the battlefield to see victories won through Jesus Christ as you engage. There is an unction of the Holy Spirit that leads us to an intuition spiritually. It's the unction of the Spirit that begins to deposit names into your heart. It's the unction of the Spirit that begins to tell you you need to be at a certain place at a certain time that you do not know why. It's the unction of the Spirit that says, because you're about my work, I will guide you and lead you, and I will tell you what to say when you get there. Because we are on a pursuit for those that need to be found. We have a tendency to get willfully locked into a certain way of doing ministry. And in doing so, we end up loving the particular way we do church more than we end up loving the people that we are called to reach. We become more about church preservation than community transformation. And I believe that God is calling us today with a fresh vision that we are to be about a transformation in our neighborhood and in our city and in our state. I believe that you have a greater sphere of influence than you ever dreamed and God wants to begin to unleash you in a pursuit mechanism that he wants to activate as you begin to seek his heart and he will empower you. In Acts 1.8, just before Jesus ascends to heaven, his disciples were looking to him because they wanted him to bring a new kingdom and one that was demonstrated through political and military power over the Romans. What they missed was that Jesus' kingdom had already come. It had already entered into a broken world. And in its breaking into the world, it didn't look to them like it was going to have much power because it was subversive and underground, yet it was real and present. And just like the disciples, we can look around and, and see certain cultural indicators that we are going the wrong direction. But I want you to know that God has planted you and has brought you to be just for such a time as this so that he can use you and he plants you with seed and he causes you to be an agent used of the gospel. In fact, we need to take a look at the way that we do working for the Lord in our culture and in our context and engage it well as we live for Christ because God wants to plant you to subvert the brokenness that's all around you. God desires to use you as yeast and use you as a small seed that goes into your community and you mix in. And unbelievably, as you mix into the brokenness around you, God begins to expand your influence. And ultimately, everything changes around you because of the Christ that is in you. So God will pursue souls through you by the power of his Holy Spirit. But he can only do it if you choose to engage and own the vision. Thirdly, our vision, if you choose to engage, 
will activate faith and courage in your life that you may never have experienced before. I think sometimes that we have conveniently forgotten that we were born into the middle of a spiritual battlefield. We oftentimes forget that there's this spiritual cosmic battle between good and evil that's raging all around us, and yet the church oftentimes lives and functions like we're in peacetime. We begin to live and function as isolated uh, congregations, forgetting that God has planted us here for a purpose that goes beyond our own comforts. And this is the way Jesus described it 2,000 years ago when he rallied the troops and he said this with a charge and a call to spiritual arms. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and will not overcome it. Here's what we need to know. Gates are a defensive measure. We have oftentimes thought that we are often playing the defense as the enemy is coming after us. And the Lord is turning this around saying, listen, my spirit-filled Pentecostal believers are going to stand up and we are going to march to the gates of hell and Satan won't be able to close them fast enough to stop the victories that are going to come as a result of my church grabbing hold of my heart and being active in the pursuit of those that have been kidnapped. That means by definition... God is calling grace assembly to play offense and not defense. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell and taking back what the enemy has kidnapped from the Lord. And I am afraid that we have reduced righteousness to the absence of wrongness. But goodness is not the absence of badness. You can do nothing wrong and still get nothing right. You can do nothing wrong and still accomplish nothing. Remember the parable of the bags of gold. If there's one lesson that God wants to teach his church, it's this. Breaking even is bad. Breaking even is not the goal. He doesn't want you to take your gifts and just bury them so that you can give them back to him. He wants us to play offense. And so we must always look for the next God-ordained opportunity. In fact, I think you need to pick a fight with the enemy. It needs to start in prayer. Some of you have sat back and thought, I'm never going to see victory. Well, stand up and be the church. Get involved in prayer. Begin to take an issue before God and watch what he can do when you stand up in the power and the might of God. I'm going to ask the worship team to please come. Because as you begin to pick a fight, you put the enemy on the defense. As you begin to do that, he will take you from the sidelines to the front lines without going anywhere. Something in this church that I want you to understand that I find very valuable is the multi-generationalness of our church. Right now there are children downstairs that are lifting their hands in prayer. We've seen the power of the Holy Spirit begin to fall on some of those kids. We've had parents have to wait because they couldn't leave church because the altar service downstairs lasted longer than ours did. But I want you to understand that there is power in the faith of those children. They are growing up day by day with a knowledge being deposited in them that they are on fire for God and they have a work to do. I love it when children pray for us because their faith is sometimes more powerful than ours. Then there's our youth. I'm so thankful that we are about to unleash them to go across this nation. And as they go to Texas, they're going to begin to use their power of their, of their arts that they have to bring a message to their generation that God changes everything. We had people that got saved here two weeks ago when, because of the power of the use of arts. 
Oh, I want you to know, teenagers, you're not just hanging on. Don't just hang in. Get involved and engage and watch what God does. Our young adults are filled with vision. They're filled with dreams. God's filling them with desires. And I want you to know that this church, we will gladly hand off to you in the right time so that you can lead to touch your generation. But I'm so thankful that we have multiple generations to worship together. And then the adults and grandparents. Our energy may run low, but our faith better be stronger than every generation before us. There comes a power that takes hold when our seniors begin to walk over and lay hands on those that are walking behind us and say, I don't want you to give up. I want you to stand up. I want you to know the power of God that will carry you through life and carry you through the formative years. Church, here's the deal. We've sat around long enough. It's time for us to begin to understand God has called us to be an offensive church and to go out and pursue those who were lost. So here's what our vision requires us to do. Quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Quit trying to think, I just want to look as good as I can when I die. I want you to wear yourselves out so there's nothing left of what God gave you until you just fall into his arms and he says, well done. You live life on the offense. Set God-sized goals. Pursue God-sized passions. Let's go after a dream that's destined to fail without divine intervention. Folks, we're about to do that in a building program. I just want you to know. God knows where my anxieties lie. And if there was any way that I could figure this out, I would be filled with anxiousness. But it's God-sized, and so I'm sitting back going, all right, God, all I know is that you said lead. And so I will go where you're going, but your name's on the line, so we're going to seek you because it's God-sized vision and God wants to accomplish something. So let's keep seeking God. Stop pointing out problems and become part of the solution. Stop repeating the past and start creating your future. Stop playing it safe. Start taking risks. Let's watch what God does. Some of our best stories come when we take risks. So let's see what he's up to. Find every excuse you can to celebrate everything you can. Let's celebrate every time a new soul comes into the kingdom. Let's jump and shout for joy at what God has done when somebody who was kidnapped is found. Live like today is the only day you're going to live. That kind of puts things in perspective. Live like today is the only day you're going to get. Burn sinful bridges. Blaze new trails. Don't let fear dictate your decisions. It's time for some of you to take a flying leap of faith. God's been planting some things in your heart for a long time that you're wondering, is it him or is it me? I want you to know it's probably him. So jump and see what he does when you jump into the unknown because God will take you and lead you. Quit holding out. Quit holding back. Go all in with God and go all out for God and watch what God does as we actively pursue those who are lost.